My daddy beats my mommy, my mommy clobbers me. My grandpa is a commie, my grandma pushes tea. My sister wears a mustache, my brother wears a dress. Goodness gracious, that's why I'm a mess. Yes, Officer Cobkey, he shouldn't be here. This boy don't need a couch, he needs a useful career. Society's played him a terrible trick. Unsociologically, he's sick. I am sick. We are sick. We are sick. We are sick. 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 Like we're sociologically sick. In my opinion, this child does not need to have his head shrunk at all. Juvenile delinquency is purely a social disease. Hey, I got a social disease. So take him to a social worker. Which way? Welcome back to The Truth Perspective. I am Harrison Cayley. Joining me today are Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And Corey Schink. Hello. This week, we are going to be continuing our discussion from last week on The Criminal Mind. Last week, we discussed a little bit about the book Inside the Criminal Mind by Stanton Samnow, as well as a few other areas of research, including the looking at in, at personality disorders in terms of the five-factor, you know, big five personality dimensions, as well as um, just some general discussion on psychopathy and criminality in general. So we're going to be continuing that discussion today. To start out with, I want to carry carry on from some of the things that I had mentioned last week about the big five, because I mentioned that in the latest personality disorder research over the past 10 years or so, there has been a, um, they've been moving in the direction of looking at personality disorders in terms of the Big Five model, and I have identified four or five dimensions of personality disorder that correlate with, the, with four of the five um, personality dimensions. Um, so I mentioned that those were um, obsessional, detached, uh, neurotic, and um, antisocial or, you know, psychopathic, or, you know, there are all kinds of descriptions to go along with those, but there are no official kind of diagnostic labels as yet, um, because those are still in development. But one of the things that I didn't mention is the, the Big Five research that has gone along with uh, psychopathy in particular, and the kind of wider um, dark triad traits in general, because um, psychopathy all, often gets linked together with two other um, like personality type measures, um, Machiavellianism and narcissism. So there's actually been quite a bit of research done looking at um, psychopathy and these other um, dark triad um, descriptors in terms of the, the five-factor model. Um, Rich, uh, not Richard, Robert Hare, um, I think he, might, well, he was probably one of the first that, uh, that did a study on this back in 1994 with Hart. Um, on five factors, uh, on the big five and psychopathy, and there have been various studies done since then. Now, what they found is that um, that psychopathy actually does correlate with the big five on, um, the, well, they've actually found correlations on all five dimensions, um, but the, the, the one that doesn't seem to be as well replicated is the openness dimension, like I mentioned last week. There doesn't seem to be a personality disorder uh, correlation with the openness dimension. Um, which, I, like I mentioned last week, is kind of interesting. But if we look at psychopathy in terms of the Big Five, 
um, it makes sense. Like when you when well, I'll read it out, and when you when you think about it, you, it'll it should kind of click. And this is something that I hadn't I hadn't read about. Like I hadn't read these papers. I hadn't looked into it. Um, it's just one of those aspects of psychopathy that I hadn't um, you know taken taken the time to see if there was anything um, you know about it. Um, but in one of Jordan Peterson's talk talks, I'd heard him answer a question about psychopathy where he said, oh, well, it seems to me that psychopathy seems to be just like an extreme of these dimensions of the five-factor model. I'm not sure if that's all that it is, but he's definitely right, and there are the correlations to prove it. So psychopaths are, um, they correlate positively with extroversion. So psychopaths are like outgoing in the world, you know, and that's, of course, they've got the gift of gab. They're, they're affable. They, they can come across as just great people to be around, right? And that's the kind of act that they put on. But you can't really put on that, put on that act if you're not actually extroverted. So psychopaths do seem to be extroverted. Um, the, oddly enough, they're positively correlated with openness, um, at least in, this, um, in these there's probably one or more studies that uh, that found this correlation with openness, 0.24, which is actually, uh, you know, pretty big. Um, negative in agreeableness. Now, this is something that, um, that all of the kind of um, mean or antagonistic personality disorders um, share, is that they're all low in agreeableness. So this is something, again, that if you've listened to any Jordan Peterson lectures, when he talks about um, crime and gender differences, and he talks about violence, you know, when he says, when you, when you take... Um, the top hundred most violent people in in society they're all going to be men because that's the way that the the, the distribution graphs work the bell curves right that you have the um, the tails the, the tails of the bell curve are um, you, more of those well the tails are occupied by um, men in certain dimensions and by women in others so for example men on average are more disagreeable than women uh, women are more agreeable and um, so when you look at psychopathy, psychopaths are probably the most disagreeable people out there. Um, you can't convince them of anything, right? Because they're the ones that are right. They know that they're right. And they're the ones that are going to try to persuade you to do something or persuade you that, you, that you're wrong. Like, you can't, you can't play a psychopath unless you're, like, you know, really skilled. You have, to be, you have to have developed that skill in order to be able to put one over on a psychopath. Um, they're the experts at that. They're, they're expert manipulators. So extremely disagreeable and uh, extremely unconscientious. So they, so psychopaths are not conscientious people, and you find this particularly in if you if you've read uh, *Mask of Sanity* by Harvey Kleckley, uh, pardon me, or even in uh, Samenow's description of the criminal mind, criminals are not conscientious. Like they don't take res they don't they don't take responsibility. They don't take responsibility for their actions. They are not reliable. Um, they expect to get something for nothing. Um, in a sense, they're lazy bums. Um, they want they want something for nothing, and that is essentially what motivates them in a lot of cases to commit crime. They expect things that they feel they deserve things, and that they don't have to work for them. And they so they they might have these um, these grand dreams of of what they want and what they deserve. They might want well they, they want all the perks of something without putting any of the work into it. Um, but oddly, there is this aspect of psychopathy where you find that psychopaths do work, they do put effort into, into certain things, um, like they might plan a crime very well, they might um, expertly manipulate a situation in the workplace to get something that they want, but this seems to be something different than what we just consider conscientiousness. Like uh, a psychopath will, a psychopath 
in the workplace won't do the work. Um, he will get someone else to do the work for him and then take credit for it. So they, they are like parasites. They do manipulate, but they don't actually do anything productive or responsible. And that seems to be a, a general trait. So when you have a, a psychopath who's, or someone that you think is psychopathic but who seems to be actually very conscientious, chances are they're not a psychopath or they may be personality disordered in some way. Like we mentioned um, last week, in this dimensional model, they may have, like their personality um, disorder may express itself just in certain of those personality dimensions. And in which case, again, we may, you know, maybe it's not the best term to call them a psychopath because psychopaths tend to not be conscientious. And then lastly, negative correlation on neuroticism. So psychopaths are not neurotic. They do not experience um, like negative emotions like that, like anxiety or fear or worry to the extent that other people do. So that seems to be like the psychopathic um, like big five um, picture of you know, what psychopaths look, look like in terms of those uh, personality measures. Now, um, just to get things started off, I want to read two paragraphs on this. From One is from a... Uh, a piece called Personality's Big One and the Enigma of Narcissism by Scott McGreal. Um, well, the title's kind of self-explanatory, but let me just read this. So he writes, Research using the Big Five... Um, well, sorry, this is uh, to do with the dark triad, like I mentioned earlier. So research, research using the Big Five has found the, that the most consistent feature shared by all members of the dark triad, so that is narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, is low agreeableness, indicating a common core of selfish disregard for others. Apart from low agreeableness, narcissism seems to be more psychologically adaptive than psychopathy and Machiavellianism, and this may be because they are related to the other Big Five traits in different ways. Specifically, narcissism tends to be associated with very high extroversion and somewhat high conscientiousness and openness to experience, and with low neuroticism. So I'm going to cut in right there. So low neuroticism, share that. They, um, narcissists share that with psychopathy. But it looks like narcissists might be more, have more openness and somewhat higher conscientiousness. So this would be like, so this person's not necessarily psychopathic. They're narcissistic. So you meet someone in your life and it's like, oh, that person's a real narcissist. They may be like good at their jobs. They may be hardworking, but they're just totally self-absorbed. So this might, this is probably more along the lines of extroversion than, um, than any of these other factors. So he continues, psychopathy and Machiavellianism are both associated with low conscientiousness and tend to be unrelated to the remaining traits with the exception that Machiavellianism tends to be associated with higher neuroticism. So again, he's quoting one study, um, which doesn't match with the other study that I that I cited, where there are correlations in psychopathy to all these dimensions. So I mean, you find that in research; it's hard to know who's right about what. But um, at least in this in this study, he's saying that um, um, psychopathy and Machiavellianism both associated with low conscientiousness. So this would this you can think about manipulativeness in terms of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like I just mentioned. So psychopaths and Machiavellian types, uh, type people don't want to put the work in. They'd rather manipulate someone else to, to, in order to get the benefits from that manipulation as opposed to actually doing the work and, and uh, being responsible. So he writes, a combination of high extroversion and openness to experience is associated with social influence, while low neuroticism is associated with better psychological adjustment. 
This seems to fit the profile of narcissists as socially poised and self-confident people. Very low conscientiousness, on the other hand, tends to be associated with behavior that can get a person into all kinds of trouble, such as drug use and delinquency. And this fits with the perception of psychopathy and Machiavellianism as being particularly dark. Consequently, some people have argued that instead of the dark triad, it might be more useful to think of psychopathy and Machiavellianism as forming a dark dyad, with narcissism as a separate, although related, concept. So again, this just shows that no one really knows what they're talking about, because... Uh, you know, we still don't know what the what how all these things are related, how these personality features are related. We don't even know really what the what the the root of the big five is. Like uh, like we said last week, it, it came totally um, atheoretically. Like there was no theory behind it. It was just strictly a product of the statistics. So we don't know what like what really contributes to openness or like extroversion. Um, we haven't found the biological correlates exactly. I mean, people are doing research in this direction, but so far it's still a mystery. It's like, it's a mystery why we have the personality dimensions that we do have. Um, so I just wanted to share that on the, on the dark triad. But one more quote, and this is from a paper, uh, Psychopathy, the Big Five, and Empathy as Predictors of Violence in a, in a Forensic Sample of Substance Abusers. This is by Stephanie Maria Nigel. Um, just one paragraph from this, she writes, the big five factors and empathy domains failed to statistically predict violence, despite showing significant correlations with the psychopathy factors. Hence, substance-abusing violent offenders display a distinct pattern of personality characteristics with uh, IA, not sure what that means, being associated with, um, with high neuroticism, low agreeableness, and low conscientiousness, as well as high personal distress and low perspective-taking. Basically, so in this study, she's looking at specifically substance abusers, violent substance abuse, abusers. So these would be like uh, people in a, a criminal population. And found that the, the big five couldn't predict violence. And, but in these, substance, these violent substance abusers, so violent drug users, what they did find was, again, low, low agreeableness. So this would be like the antisocial um, you know, type. Low conscientiousness, again, this is what... Uh, what uh, psychopaths and uh, Machiavellians possess, but also high neuroticism. So this was something that, that, uh, that they found in other research too, is that um, neuroticism tends to be associated with drug use. Like there was a, uh, on Wikipedia, I saw a graph from a study on uh, using the big five to study heroin users. And they found that, uh, that there were, that heroin users like as a whole, um, deviated from the, the standard, like the mean of the normal population on, um, well, to various degrees for all five um, personality dimensions, but I think that the neuroticism was the highest one. So, so you, well, that's just interesting. It might say something about, um, um, well, the relation of, of drug use to other kind of personality disorder dimensions that um, the, the more neurotic you are, like the more actual emotional disturbance you have, that, uh, that seems to be a, a contribution to whether you'll actually um, abuse drugs. But then again, um, psychopaths tend to as well abuse drugs, but probably looking at it in terms of personality for different reasons, right? The psychopaths just want to feel good, whereas there might be more, uh, a more like emotional, uh, emotional reason for the, the majority of non-psychopathic drug users. But um, the taking off from that, maybe we can go in the direction of violence because this was one thing um, that we also mentioned briefly last week is that the Big Five 
can't predict violence, and there doesn't seem to be a, a personality, personality disorder dimension that accounts for actual violent criminal behavior. That seems to be something separate than just the factors that go into um, whether you have a personality disorder or not. So, Corey, I think you had something on that. Uh, how about we go in that direction? <clears throat> well, yeah, I think uh, uh, just looking at the different studies that have been done on, um, you know, children and growing up and, you know, and bad homes or having birth complications and uh, comparing those to controls and looking at, you know, the, over the years, how many of them turn out to be violent. Uh, one thing that the studies have found is that, you know, if a child has no, um, no discernible uh, biological risk factors in terms of, you know, the, you know, the standard genes that we found that, uh, that predispose one towards uh, are, are implicated in predisposing people towards violence, or they don't have, they didn't have any birth complications, um, and they were raised in uh, in good families. Uh, these uh, these people, you know, they had they they compared these people to uh, people who had were raised in bad families, you know, with maternal neglect and. Uh, you know, absent father, and they found that, you know, actually uh, there wasn't really a big difference. You know, social risk factors, you know, like the kind of social risk factors that were all told predispose people towards violence, they didn't actually explain anything. So they looked, then they looked at just the biological um, risk factors, you know, the genes the, and the, the complications. They also found that didn't really make much of a difference. But when they combined the biological and the social risk factors, they found that that, um, that actually that explained at least 9% of the variations in the predispositions towards violence. And then um, they, but, you know, one of the, actually one of the most striking things is that when you take out, you know, those biological risk factors and then the uh, stable family risk factors, but you look at lead and in, anatomy, in the anatomy of violence, Agent Rain found that, um, or he cites the studies that find that lead uh, contamination in homes actually explained 91% of the variations in violence. So when you look at just the, the toxicity in, you know, in the human condition, mm -hmm. that actually, uh, that can explain quite a bit of the, you know, the reasons for, uh, for the predisposed people towards violence. But when you look at it in kind of an instrumental way, and you look at it in terms of personality, I think that it's useful to look at crime as a way of uh, just defining it as a way of taking resources. That's what, you know, crime in most ways is you're, you're trying to steal resources from other people. When you look at like the professional criminal who's, you know, goes and, you know, robs people's houses or, you know, and resources in terms of women, in terms of uh, food, money. Um, and in that sense, then, you know, the criminal uses the, uses violence as an instrument only in as much as he needs to, you know, in, in as much as it fits his, his um, his size, his weight, the you know his ability to actually you know uh, use violence successfully, um, and so I think that you know it really it really comes down to an individual case by case uh, scenario when you're trying to decide which uh, when is violence actually going to be used as an in an instrumental way in order to get what the criminal wants, and as we discussed last week. It is an evolutionarily viable strategy, at least in terms of like our lower and more animalistic instinct to, you know, to just be a, a bumbling fool who just steals things and then, you, um, you know, impregnates a lot of women and then ends up, you know, dying young. But still, he passes his genes on. 
Um, so yeah. Well, um, oh, I wanted to say something about that. I like the way you described uh, like crime in terms of taking resources. That ties in again to low conscientiousness, right? Because conscientious people work for what they get, and um, and they don't steal it, right? That's kind of the the opposite of a conscientious person. So there's a personality dimension. And this gets into another book that Sam now wrote, the myth of the out of the myth of the out of character crime or the out of character criminal. Can't remember the exact title. Um, but what he found in that, and the, the the main point of that book was to look at people who, if you would ask the people that know them, like before they got caught for a crime, basically they'd say, "Oh no, that person's fine. You know, they they're not a criminal." And then then they they do something. Um, it could be it could be something just to, like a like stealing from department stores and finally getting caught, or it might be a violent crime. And then out, then out of nowhere, it's like, oh, well, that that was that was totally out of character. Mm-hmm. Like that uh, that came out of nowhere. We didn't expect that. And the, so the point of the book is to show that that is a myth. That actually there's no such thing as an out of character crime. When the, when the crime actually occurs, it is totally consistent with their personality before the. The, the, before carrying out that criminal act, so we have these two these two factors to look at. You've got the the actual personality structure, and the the thinking that goes into the behaviors that uh, you know that make up what that person is, their character, and then you've got the actual crime and the actual violence. And so we can see this in the data too, where we've got the like the, we can look at people's personalities in terms of the the five factors, but that won't necessarily determine whether they're whether they will end up committing crime and violent crime at that too so th- these seem to be dissociated in some way they come together of course because i, I think that uh, um, it's probably a majority a majority of the violence will be committed by people who are personality disorder to some degree or character disturbed there's different ways of saying the same thing essentially um, but not all people with personality disorders will will go on to commit crime and to and to commit violence, or they just might not be, get caught at it. So we've got two, maybe three different categories within the, this personality disordered population. But to to so when we're looking at what might explain the actual crime, the actual violence, like, like you said, Corey, the direction to look in might be the the best direction to look in might be in terms of the like, assaults on the nervous system that will produce changes in like the brain, for instance. So this might be heavy metals, toxicity, or um, like that combination between um, genetic predisposition and certain environmental assaults also on the nervous system. And that will create this kind of um, this, this um, brain, like uh, brain abnormality that gets added on top of that already um, like uh, crime-prone personality structure. Now, so if just as a thought experiment, um, I think this is—I think I was thinking in terms of this when I was actually reading *Anatomy of Violence*. If you—if we could imagine a world, um, a society where we were able to take care of all of the the risk factors that Rain mentions in the book, 
because he goes through several and he gives several actual like policy recommendations essentially like he says that we should be like supplementing with fish oils especially in prisons because they they've done studies and found that when they introduce fish oil supplementation among violent offenders the violence actually goes down like they actually get better to a degree and there are several factors like this that indicate that a lot of the actual crime levels could go down with very simple interventions, um, whether dietary or you know d just health-wise, in terms of eliminating heavy, heavy metal toxicity, getting the right nutrition. That would seem to go a long way to actually eliminating the crime level. Mm -hmm. So imagine this society where you know this is just like a, a utopian, almost just just thought experiment. I mean, it's not like. We're actually pushing for this, or you know, think that it'll, it will be a, a you know a grand solution to anything. But just imagine if all of these factors were taken care of to the point where you eliminated crime, right? Well, what would you what would you still have? You'd still have those personality structures, right? Those personality disordered people. You would have the people in Samanow's other book who never eventually got to committing that crime. But if they were to commit a crime you would still be able to look back at their personality and say, okay, well, that explains it. So we still have the personalities, but we don't necessarily have the crime. Now, um, just on the, on the practical surface of things, that, even that would be better than the status quo, right? Because no crime is better than uh, a lot of crime. And there is a lot of crime. You mean little crime would be better than a lot of crime. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, a lot of crime would be better. No, <laughs> yeah, a little crime. Yeah, no crime would be better, of course. Um, and uh, I wrote an article like a, a week or so ago on, um, you know, an unrelated topic, well, related in some degree, on the gulag, because uh, I'd read a, a paragraph in a certain book that I, I'd read just talking about Stalin and things like that, but that, that's kind of irrelevant. The, the point that I, one of the points that I made in the, in the article was talking about crime rates, um, because this was a, like a comparison of the number of like Americans that are in prison compared to the number of Russians that were like in the gulag system. And because one of the things that most people probably know, at least most people listening to this show, is that America, the United States, has the highest prison population in the world. Like not just in terms, in, in terms of numbers, like the most actual people, but the most percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. So something like, what is it... Um, um, I think it's like four out of every thousand people or something, or seven out of every thousand people are in prison. I, I don't have the figures in front of me. But it's, uh, it's the biggest in the world. And, um, but then if you look at a, a population in a society like Japan, Japan has almost no crime. And, um, of course, that doesn't mean that Japanese society is perfect, but if, if we're looking, you know, if you're looking for a neighborhood to live in and, and you've got a choice, you're going to choose the one without crime, Right. Um, at least that's going to be one factor that you look into. So in this hypothetical like society, we can eliminate crime. Good. What are we left with? Personality disturbance, personality disorders still that ne may never reach the level of violence or crime, but which still, in which still influence the people around you and your life in general um, to a negative degree. So once we've kind of dissociated those two things from each other, I think that is helpful um, in a number of ways, one of which is just in terms of understanding um, understanding people in general and the people you know and love and interact with in your daily life, but also yourself. Because, um, first of all, if you look at other people, you have to have an understanding, uh, or you should have an understanding of the people around you and whether they are, let's say, a good influence 
uh, on you and the and the people around them or or not and what to do about that um, if you know if they're not a good influence and also on yourself to look at your own personality flaws the the things that you don't like in others that you can see in yourself in which you can then work on now of course people with personality disorders won't do this at least not with the with most of the personality disorders like on the the three of the four dimensions like people with uh, uh, like avoidant dependent neurotic type personalities they will look for help it's debatable how much um, of an effect or, or how much success they can have in actually you know becoming better but um, for the vast majority of people who don't have an actual personality disorder we still have features um, in common with criminals and with personality disordered peoples these are the things that um, the things about our personalities that we like instinctively instinctually know that we could work on mm -hmm. right these are the flaws that we realize that we have the flaws that our parents and that our friends might point out to us and that if we want to take responsibility for our lives and actually become something and and grow into the potential that we could become those are the things we have to focus on so um, with that said maybe we can take a look at some of the things that Sam now notices in in his criminal populations like the um, the thinking errors and then we can go from there but or, or take it in a completely other other direction up to you guys well uh, just to get back to Sam now's other book it's uh, the myth of the out-of-character crime yeah, okay. is the exact title uh, which is also an excellent book um, but one book that uh, we haven't discussed yet, which, which I think speaks to what you just mentioned, Harrison, is Character Disturbance, the Phenomenon of Our Age, which is by George K. Simon. Um, he also wrote a few books in sheep's clothing, understanding and dealing with manipul manipulative people. So uh, what we've been doing uh, on the last show and this show, I think, is it's multi-pronged. So we're trying to understand... Um, how criminals think, what goes into the thinking, what, what are, what's informing the, uh, the behavior of criminals, what it looks like. And also, just as you mentioned, Harrison, what are those traits or what are those, uh, those things specifically that we do ourselves uh, which resemble um, the types of thinking in, in worst-case scenarios uh, of psychopaths, of the character disturbed, and that, I think, is where character disturbance is really quite useful because, uh, basically, um, Simon has cataloged uh, a very large number of, of features of uh, character-disturbed people. Um, expansive fantasy, pathological desire for adulation and admiration, passive disregard for the rights, needs, or concerns of others, uh, reactive aggression, predatory aggression. And what he does is he breaks down all of these uh, features of, of character-disturbed people and, and gives a very specific description. Um, and I, you know, I can't imagine a person reading this book honestly and reflecting upon their own behavior and not not seeing things in themselves or not recalling a time or two when they've behaved in in ways that match the book. So uh, it's certainly instructive in, in recognizing this behavior when um, it's, it's engaged in by others so that you can protect yourself or counteract it or mitigate it. Um, but 
I think the real uh, crux of it, the real meat of it, the real value in it uh, is to is to recognize it in yourself and be honest enough to try and correct for it in the future so that it's not a pattern, so that uh, it doesn't become part of your character, part of something that you do. Uh, I mean, the very first step to all of this is just becoming aware of it. Right. You become maybe a little more critical of the thoughts that you're having, because that's when we get to this level, we're looking at it from the level of our conscious thoughts. And of course, it's difficult. You know, we're not always conscious of every little thought that goes through our head. And, you know, that's something that we kind of, you know, you want to grow in awareness of how you think and, you know, and thinking about the way you think is is something of an art. You know, it's a kind of a step towards philosophy. But, uh yeah, the criminal, I mean, I just wanted to read six uh, examples of thoughts uh, that a criminal had just in the span of a few hours. This was recorded in, in Same Now's book. Um, when The first one was, when he was passing a jewelry store, he thought of writing fraudulent checks to make a purchase. When he passed a bank, he thought of armed robbery. When he looked at a National Geographic exhibit, he thought of stealing a skull. When seeing an alley, he thought of dragging in a woman and raping her. When seeing a woman with a valuable piece of jewelry, he thought about how to, how to acquire it by con or force. A stream of thoughts about holdups, assaults, and homicide possibly followed by suicide. Uh, clearly, this is darkness. <laughs> this is abject darkness. And, you, you know, we, we're looking at these things from many different angles. And who knows, this, you know, you look at this individual, and this was back in the 70s, and I, I think it was the late 70s, and we talked about, you know, lead uh, being an issue in terms of contaminating your, your body and causing these kinds of these thoughts. There's, you know, the biological uh, predispositions, there's social predispositions. But when at a certain point, you know, if you ever caught yourself thinking like this, you would think, you know, at some point, some spark within you would say, there is something very wrong with me, I need to... To get help. This, that's the problem here when we talk about treatment resistant, is that this is the kind of thinking that this guy is resistant to treating. You know, this, these are the kinds of, this is the internal world, the phenomenology, I guess you would say, of, of the criminal's mind. And uh, Ilan, you discussed uh, some of the, the kinds of thinking errors, and I'd just like to go into uh, a couple more of them. These are uh, what are called automatic errors in thinking, which are basically unconscious. It's difficult to really know that you're doing them, but um, one was the closed channel, um, which, which basically means that the criminal operates on the basis of secrecy, of closing himself off from the world, and of being self-righteous. So that, you know, you're, you're not open to feedback. You know, it, make, it precludes any sort of criticism from others. And it makes sure that what, no, you are never going to get any sort of form of positive feedback to change your behavior. And, but, you know, on the, the level that's, the, that's positive for the criminal is that means he never gets criticized. He doesn't have to expose himself and then act possibly find out that he is not the genius that he thinks he is. You know, that's, that could be damaging to that narcissistic mentality. And another thinking error was, I can't, which is basically his attitude towards life is, you know, there's nothing I can't do that I want to do. And then if, I, if you, know, you try and get him to change, oh, I can't because of my impulses. I can't because I, you know, I was damaged. Or I can't because this is just the way that I am. You know, 
I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that excuse coming from people who aren't criminals, but that's just one of the elements that these gentlemen investigated that they found composes a large part of the criminal's thinking is I can't change. I just, there's just no way, you know, who could change, you know, who can change? It's, it's, it's silly. Then there's the idea of self-criticism, which, you know, in reference to being responsible for your life is ultimately incompatible with criminality. And so when you look at, look at criminality from this sense, you get an idea that it is basically a, a way of living that is antithetical to, that is just a completely alternative way of living to, you know, the kind of uh, world, the kind of order and organized conscientious lifestyle that we have discussed in previous shows, that this is a, a more or less a conscious choice for a lot of criminals to embrace this. It could be due to any sort of, um, you know, uh, damage to, you know, your bodily systems or whatever. But like I discussed those thoughts earlier, those are conscious thoughts, you know, this, this, this person is having those thoughts, you know, and it's no sense that I get that this person thinks that's, um, you know, that there's something mm -hmm. necessarily wrong, that that is, you know, every, you know, it could be exciting. It could be fun. You know, it, it just sounds like a, um, just a, a sort of, a, a, just a place of darkness. It's strange. What was the, what was the self-criticism that you mentioned? Like, cause is that, how is that a thinking error for the criminal? So basically if he, He's incapable of of, okay, of criticizing so himself. Okay. Yeah, so it's a lack of self a lack of self criticism. Okay. Yeah, and uh, then there's the victim stance, which I think we've all seen enough of in the in the media these days, where whenever the criminal is held accountable for anything, he portrays himself as a victim. Um, you know, he he doesn't actually think of himself, you know, as a victim in while he's out committing his daily crimes. But it's a convenient thinking error whenever he gets um, interrogated for doing whatever he's doing, or in order to you know shift blame onto someone else or as a tactic, and then failure to put oneself in another's position where he has he basically operates only in on the very surface sentimental uh, type of way towards other people where he'll he'll consider I know, he'll be extremely sentimental towards the the you know babies or the handicapped or his parents his own parents his grandparents in in a very surface and sentimental way but then when it comes down to it he doesn't he doesn't want to associate with them because there's nothing he can get out of it it doesn't you know that there's nothing that the criminal sees in his own um, satisfaction and out of actually dealing with them well it, it seems to me that the criminal puts himself above everything and and this includes any kind of um, uh, spiritual uh, idea as well. Um, there was one quote that jumped out at me in uh, in Samnow's book: "The criminal expects to prevail in every situation. He considers himself the hub of the wheel, never one of the spokes." As one man reflected, quote, "I made myself a little god at every turn." Uh, and Simon, in his book talks about um, no concept of higher power. Narcissistic characters can't conceive of anything more important, more capable, or more potent than themselves. This leaves no room in their hearts for any concept of a higher power or authority. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about the concept of a god in a Judeo-Christian sense. As adherents to AA precepts know, there are many ways to conceive of a higher power. For the humanist, one needs to respect the collective greater good of society. 
For the non-deist scientist, it might be recognizing the nature and complexity of the physical universe that leads to humbly identifying oneself as a relatively insignificant character in a grand cosmic drama. Most of us have a deep abiding sense that there is something bigger than us. And it, uh, it reminded me a little bit of the story of Malcolm X. In his autobiography, uh, he was quite honest about the fact that he was a criminal, uh, a petty thief, a drug addict, uh, until he finally got caught and was imprisoned. And, um, you know, it was there that he had uh, befriended the Nation of Islam uh, representatives and, uh, and found his higher power, began to read voraciously, educating himself in, in his years in prison, and, and basically elevated himself from, from, a, uh, from a real low, low level of existence. Um, so I, I think these were uh, subjects that we touched upon a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago um, uh, when we discussed uh, Strange Order of Things, um, how, how that reverence for something higher, uh, including knowledge, um, is, is something that, uh, that helps us to attain homeostasis um, from wherever, whatever position that you may be in, uh, potentially. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there as, as something that uh, is worth considering. Um, well, that just reminded me, I'll just, it's just a, a little anecdote Reminded me of something that Putin said recently, like I think it was about a week ago. Or no, it might have been longer. I actually don't know when he actually said it. That's just when I saw the video. Someone had asked him, like a journalist had asked him when he started believing in God. <clears throat> and his response was that it's a very, it's a very like intimate, like personal question. It's uncomfortable to talk about. So he gave kind of a general response. He said that he thinks that everyone is born with some kind of like implicit connection with uh, with God, with the higher power, but that it in some people it is that connection is felt and experienced um, like all the time or to a large degree like throughout their life, but for some people it's and for some people other people it's only in a situation like trench warfare where you know the hard the hardest core atheist like asks the question and is like okay you know is there something more and feels feels that connection feels that's something, that grand mystery, that, you know, the ultimate. And so for, so for some people, it requires that, um, it requires that dis, that kind of, I wouldn't say traumatic experience, but an, an intense experience, maybe a life or death one, not necessarily, but to kind of, to kind of break open the, the, the pipe, you know, the water pipe connecting the, you know, the divine to the human. Uh, for others, that pipe is usually clear. Um, but so in, in, in some cases, I'd think that you, maybe we could say that the, the pipe is either completely blocked or perhaps even, well, I wouldn't say non-existent because I don't think anything cannot be connected in some way to the ultimate, but just um, blocked in some sort of way, even in a, in a, almost like a permanent pathological pathological kind of way. But in others, like perhaps with Malcolm X, there is an experience that shatters that previous personality structure and that opens the pipes a little bit, and that leads to a personality transformation. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, again, uh, we brought up just briefly last week about what is the, 
how can we think about personality and personality development? I think maybe we can get into that, but first I just wanted to give one observation from one of the points that you mentioned from Sam Now's book, Corey, about the sentimentality of criminals. Two things on that. The first would be he gives the example of criminals who can, like speaking with them, they're just over-the-top sentimental about maybe old people. Like they just, they, they care so much for seniors. And uh, he gives, I think he gives one example of one guy who's just talking about how he just loves old people and his grandparents or something. Mm-hmm. And this guy was in prison for like, ripping off old people like for ripping off seniors and you know there are con men like that who target the the old and the frail so they're on the so it's like it's it's surface deep in some way it may appear genuine but but really it comes it's just this surface level sentimentality for for the weak and the infirm but when it comes down to it, it's if if they've got something that they want, that the psychopath, the criminal wants, he'll just take it and, you know, maybe even kill that thing, that person that he was previously sentimental about. And that just led me, led, led my thinking in the direction of that my second observation or thought on that was that if you think about that in terms of the political spectrum and uh, specifically like the left and liberal thinking, really... What it comes down to is that that's the that's the model for leftist thinking. There is this sentimentality, this surface level appreciation for and compassion for the the weak and the downtrodden. That you scratch that surface and you find out that it's only surface deep. It's not deep at all. And this is what inspired George Orwell to to say that he you know he didn't think socialists actually cared for the poor they just hated the rich now you can't you can't um you can't generalize that to all leftist you know thinkers or people on the, on the left side of the spectrum but for especially for the actual politicians involved when you when you get into the party system i think that's more true than the you know than the any actual genuine sentiment what you find are politicians like um like Pretty much all of the Democratic Party, or at least the, the vast majority of the ones who have um, a public presence, you'll find this over-the-top, sentimental, um, f- fake compassion when you look at their actual actual policies and what they actually think, and they don't care one way. They don't care about these people. They don't care about anyone. They, in fact, the policies that they have are detrimental to the people that they um, profess to fight for, and when pointed out they'll just deny it and i mean so really it is a a criminal mm. uh, a criminal political philosophy at least in the way that it that it at least in the way that it actually manifests in the world like there is a political philosophy to the left um you know rooted in actual concern and uh actual compassion but you don't find that actually expressed in the in in the party systems that that um, put that ideology into practice it becomes a mask to 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 cover over just a kind of criminal mentality yeah when you look at the thinking errors characteristic of a criminal you can you see them in spades throughout the you know like the that leftist kind of political spectrum Mm -hmm. these days you know from you know having a closed channel where they refuse to have discussions like open and honest discussions about their policies their proposed policies 
to you know the um, the sentimentality that you were you're talking about, and you know just the the idea of the uniqueness there. You know everyone's you know especially you know the you know the uniqueness of um, the individual. You know just the celebrating just this kind of narcissistic idea of of you know I'm unique because um, you know of LGBT or you know race or whatever and that that you know gives me license to do whatever I want and flaunt it in the public and you know carve my body up and you know just do all these crazy body modifications to to lying you know just um and you know without any impunity just just lying about things just making them up um you know, especially you know, in the mainstream media, you see it every every single day. It's yeah. I think that um, when you look at it on the social level, you know, the when the criminal mentality manifests on the social level, you know, you you end up with um, yeah. I mean, it's it's these are people uh, committing non-arrestable crimes, really. You know, I mean, but at the same time, the criminal spirit is, just runs rampant and it drives people insane because your instinct is telling you that there that there is a, you know, in some way there's a massive offense being waged against you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the very people who are responsible for, you know, putting justice into action are the ones manifesting the most criminal traits. And it doesn't. It's, you know there are there are obviously a few that that um, you know like threatening to assassinate the president on Twitter that you obviously think well somebody should be you know somebody should get um, uh, punished disciplined for that behavior but it, it doesn't happen instead you, the um, you know the the more sane and rational members of society are just kind of slowly just this criminality just keeps flaunting itself and flaunting itself and flaunting itself and yes. it drives people up the wall and it should you know and it seems like there the more the more you look uh, it seems like there isn't any kind of sector or industry or um, vocation well I don't want to exaggerate things but there are there are so many fields, particularly in the U.S., um, that seem to select for psychopathic traits. Uh, it reminds me of a questionnaire I once read, which um, I don't remember who put it out, but it was one of these personnel human resources questionnaires that came from a company in Wall Street. And, uh, and basically, someone leaked uh, the questions and uh, did an analysis on it and the questions were designed to select for psychopathic traits this is what <laughs> the 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 corporation on wall street was looking for um and and when you when you hear something like that it makes all of the all of the geopolitical policies uh, uh or economic policies um that that have been uh, inflicted on nations around the world, um, it, it makes a lot of sense because it's you know getting back to what you were saying, Corey, about uh, you know stealing resources, uh, but stealing the life force and the energy of of people, stealing their health, stealing their well being, uh, in in the name of of profits and and power. Um, it it's a it's a kind of a a, a large uh, it's a plague of of being uh that we're seeing across the board um so that's one of the reasons why discussion of psychopathy and and all its many guises and really 
like also what you were alluding to, Harrison, how complex it is, because there isn't any one kind of causal factor. It's, it's a combination of things, uh, and it exists on, on many different levels, and it's as overt in some cases as it is subtle in others. Um, but I think it behooves us to, to, to keep looking at it and trying to understand it, where it exists and how it exists, because the situation has has not gotten any better. It seems like the, the floodgates of of psychopathy, anything goes, um, especially in regards to uh, political ideology, uh, has just it, it's gotten it's gotten crazy. It's gotten totally insane. Yeah, that that makes me think in terms of what we were uh, discussing earlier in the show about violence, um, you know, and how you can predict violence, what kinds of uh, factors predict it, and but specifically about it being an instrument in order to gain power, you know, that at least for the criminal mind, violence is only you know useful in as much as it suits their own personal you know their own personal drive. Um, when you look at this other, this, all these, uh, this kind of power thrust that you see t in today's society, you know, you see a different form of violence. It's still violence, but it's covert. You know, it's very much a covert way of trying to gain power in order to basically just to shove their own, you know, the, their ideology down anybody's throats just but really fundamentally just in order to gain power and it's you know it's dressed up as you know rights for everybody human rights and freedoms um but you know when it comes down to it this is the criminal mind on um on its you know it's kind of covert warpath and you know this kind of thinking inevitably results in real actual crimes you know mm -hmm. further down the road that's the that's the real problem is that you know when you don't nip it in the bud it becomes real crime it becomes real violence and we've seen it throughout history you know you've seen it in the soviet union and you've seen that kind of that kind of drive in in nazi germany too just when i was talking about you know the darkness that it seemed that manifested in the criminals thoughts um, it reminds me of a, a map that some really, really creative artist cre uh, made out of Jordan Peterson's, um, his, basically his archetypal discussions. You know, he created an entire map out of, you know, Jordan Peterson's uh, lectures. And on the map, you know, down at the bottom, you know, there's this giant castle that, you know, manifests order. There's the borders around the castle that manifest, you know, the the um you know the protecting from the outside influences and and then but down at the very bottom there's chaos and in chaos there was uh that's where the people went who and they went deeper and deeper into it in order to prove to themselves that you know that the light didn't exist and they just kept going deeper and deeper into the darkness and that's what the criminal mind inevitably is it seems to me is is attracted to you know, you can you can try and you know change their mind. You can do all of these different sorts of um, uh, therapies, or you know, if you enacted policies around the world that you know reduced criminal behavior, you would still. I think you would still have this fundamental attraction on the part of some people towards darkness for whatever you know whatever else you'd want to describe it. And you know, you've seen that in Nazi Germany, and you've seen obviously, if you could think of the worst conditions you could put a society through in order to make sure it didn't commit crime, that would those would be the worst conditions. You know, Matt, the, just the onslaught of World War One, 
and the um, you know the collapse of the Weimar Republic, and then inflation, just and then you know hit, you know Hitler coming to power, and all the crazy Germanic uh, racial theories that were floating around at the time. But the people were programmed to seek that darkness. You know, they were programmed to be attracted to Hitler and his idea of, you know, let's just all be damned. We're going to take it all, you know, we're going to take everything or we're going to go down swinging, you know. And, you know, this, that, that is, I think, a very important dimension to the criminal mind that even if it doesn't reach that level here in the States or, you know, if we don't see a revolution or anything um, that, you know, at that level, that is still, I think, the driving force behind a lot of these, these uh, sort of leftist liberals that, you know, the, on, the, on the outside, the mask that they present is, you know, love and light, but on the inside, they're just ravenous beasts, mm -hmm. just ravenous criminal beasts. And not saying that all of them are, but at this point in time, anyone who's still on that train is looking to get into the, you know, into that criminal uh, pudding. Well, uh, you said a few things there that, um, that reminded me of some recent stories we've been carrying on Sat, uh, especially uh, in light of the idea of the criminal's violence and or threat of violence or bullying and holding that as a um, as a kind of a, a club over which to to manipulate uh, others to to uh, go its way, um, and this story gets back to Syria. Um, we carried a story recently that uh, I think it was a Syriana analysis that discussed a meeting, a secret meeting held in Damascus in June where uh, an American military uh, person came to meet with uh, the politicians of Assad's government and, uh, and basically said, you know, if you allow us, uh, say, eastern part of Syria to stay here and you... Uh, and you take out the Iranian presence uh, and the Hezbollah presence um, and let us take some of the oil in Syria, basically we'll, we'll leave you alone. And the response to that was no. Uh, the response was uh, basically the Iranians and, and Hezbollah is here at our invitation and no, you're not welcome to our oil, no deal. So that was in June. And I could be reading this incorrectly, but I just find it fascinating that only two months later, you have threats of the U.S. militarily attacking Syria again on the possibility that there'll be more chemical attacks that, that of course, uh, everyone will assume would have come from Assad, even though that's ridiculous and nonsensical. Why would Assad... You know, want to attack his own people uh, with chemical weapons when, in fact, he's winning the war and is very close to getting rid of the militants in Idlib, Syria. So uh, you have an American military presence in the form of naval vessels approaching um, uh, Syria, threatening to attack. You have all of this rhetoric coming out of Washington, uh, specifically from John Bolton. Um, you have the Russian government saying that they have intelligence mentioning the fact that uh, there have been mobilizations of militants with possible chemical weapons uh, accompanied by 
the white helmets, uh, who it looks like are ready to stage another false flag attack of of innocent Syrians. So <clears throat> this point about violence as a tool was never more obvious uh, to me in 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 this incredible drama that we've been seeing in Syria uh, than in this recent development. Um, of course, we've seen it a bunch of times uh, in, in different uh, iterations, but uh, this is, yet again, um, the criminal mind of the U.S. military-industrial complex and, and aligned psychos in Washington that cannot stop themselves from trying to accrue power and resources from Syria and the Middle East at large. And on the micro scale, with, with your, just your average local uh, drug-dealing criminal, uh, that would manifest in the thinking error of ownership, which if a criminal wants something, the item or the person is his. As soon as he wants it, it's his. Well, so bringing this back to the personal level, um, since we're going to end early today, maybe this will be our last topic, spend a few minutes on it. The If we look at all of these examples, and even just using that last one as a jumping off point, ownership, when we think in terms of your own personal personality development, you know, what does this all mean? Well, like you mentioned at the end of last week's show, Corey, uh, Dabrowski, or did you actually mention it? Um, Dabrowski's um, idea of personality was that personality was only developed. Like, no one has a personality unless you actually shape it. <clears throat> He'd actually argue that very few people in history have ever had a personality, um, that personality was the goal of humanity and the goal of, of personality, of, of human development. So all the, all the ways in which we use the word personality, um, he wouldn't agree with. He'd just say, no, you need a, a different word for that. He might use the word temperament or individuality. These are just the, like the, basically the, the random lot of traits that you were born with. So no matter where you are on the, the big five, you're, you know, how open or conscientious you are, that's irrelevant. What the only thing that actually matters is what you shape for yourself, how you forge and form your own personality. And personality is the culmination, it is the goal, it is the, the manifestation of the ideal that is brought into reality and, and uh, you know, manifested in, in the form of your full character and your, and your de fully developed character. So how does that happen? How, does that, um, how is that path traversed? Well, you mentioned all of those thinking errors that Sam now gets into, and uh, one being the ownership. And you also, you gave that example of the, the six, was it six thoughts that went through this criminal's mind in the space of an hour when he's walking down the street. Um, this reminded me of something that I talked about when I did the show on the introduction to Peterson's Maps of Meaning, where he gives an example, um, not to the same degree, but he gives an example when he was at school, um, I believe it was at, at university or college when he's, you know, sitting in school and uh, in class and he's got, you know, his pencil and he looks at, at the person sitting in front of him and he sees their neck and he, he's just, the thought entered in, in his mind, the image, like the story entered in his mind, the, the impulse to stab his pencil into that person's neck. And his immediate response to that was one of 
um, astonishment at himself. Like, wow, that thought came into my head? You know, where did that come from? And really, that is, uh, that is a perfect kind of encapsulation of the, the process of personality development and in just a, a very microcosmic form, where, first of all, that thought was conscious, and second of all, it was recognized and then countered according to an ideal, according to a value. Now, most people will have thoughts like that all the time and never become aware of them, never allow them into, into their actual consciousness to the point where they realize and accept and, um, yeah, accept that they've had those thoughts. So they'll immediately, like, uh, they'll immediately repress maybe a thought like that. Like, um, this is the reason that Peterson thought that his rule on um, parenthood would, would be so controversial. You know, never let your kid do anything that uh, makes you not like them. Because if you look at a lot of parents, a lot of parents have like little monster children, and in certain moments they hate those children, but they will never let themselves admit that to themselves. They might even fantasize about doing something violent to their kid um, because the kid is acting out so much. But because they have this image of themselves as a good person and a good parent, they can't let that you know that thought really come to to come to awareness, come to consciousness. They can't accept that they actually have that thought. No, in their minds, they're a good parent, and they'd never think anything bad about their kids. Anytime you hear that from a parent, you know that they're lying. Now, so that's an, on the level of unconsciousness. That's on the level of these implicit thoughts that control behavior. And if you look at a person like that, chances are those are the people that are going to be violent to their kids, or to do something just to, to royally screw up their kids, or to you know just be a bad parent, even if. Um, even if they, uh, even if parenting doesn't really have that much of an effect on the actual, you know, future personality of the of the kid involved, you know, with all the caveats from what we've been saying over the past couple of weeks, but so that's the first. So the first process is what uh, you know Peterson captured in this example, and and what these criminals, um, this criminal in particular that you mentioned, caught is to be able to catch the thought and actually acknowledge it. Okay, this is what I thought. This is the impulse I had. This is the motivation I had. Now, the, the criminal can't get to the next step. He can't, he can't really grok or um, feel or think and, or the combination of all of those that that is wrong, that there is something better to do. He might just say, okay, well, I had that thought, and I know that you know, Dr. Sam now thinks that's a bad thing, so I'm going to tell him that. And, but really, he can't really comprehend why that's a bad thing. I mean, that's just the way he is. It would be. It would take something additional in order to actually acknowledge to himself, um, to acknowledge to himself, and to realize why that is a bad thing. Now, so you see this in the the little example from Peterson, where he has that thought and he's astonished with it, because he's got uh, like a person like Peterson, and I think that this applies to a lot of people. Maybe not even the majority, but you know, let's say a lot of people, where they'll have a thought like that. And it'll be like, okay, well, that's not the person I want to be. So you've got the people that can't even acknowledge it, and that's the person they end up being. You've got the people that can acknowledge it and still end up doing it because they can't see any path out, they can't see any better option. And you've got the people who have these thoughts, and they, they've got uh, at least an implicit ideal or value to which they're striving, in which they can compare that thought and say, okay, no, that's not the person that I want to be. That's not like, I'm not going to be... Um, you know, the person to just, well, 
in this case, it's a dumb example of just, you know, poking someone in the back of the neck. There are, of course, more serious and, um, uh, well, more serious thoughts leading to more, leading to actions that have greater consequences. But even a small one, you add them all up and that, that leads in a certain direction. So with all these thoughts that, um, that come into to mind just out of nowhere, it's a, a constant process of recognizing those thoughts and then kind of analyzing them, not necessarily analyzing them, but, um, but putting them up for comparison next to the ideal and seeing how they, how they match up with that. And that will be felt as, as meaningful in the, ter- in the terms that we used a couple weeks ago. That will be felt in terms of homeostasis. Like, um, like, how do you, like, how do you feel when you lie? It's mm-hmm. like uh, there's a feeling that accompanies lying when you know that you're wrong, right? When you know that that is a self-serving lie that, you know, that you're just taking the easy way out. You're not taking a responsibility. You know what that feels like. Everyone knows what that feels like. Well, at least everyone with a conscience, at least in, in, uh, in its incipient form, knows what that feels like. And so the, the process of, um, of manifesting the ideal and developing a personality is basically carrying out that process in every aspect of your life to the point where you you do not manifest any of those lower qualities when when your your actual actions are in constant alignment with your with your ideal and then there is a felt sense of homeostasis where and, and meaning where you know that you are on that on the right path and that um and that there is nothing that you, nothing that you can do or nothing that anyone can do to you to um to make you violate your own values and violate that ideal so that would be i think the you know the ultimate vision of where things where human development and personality development can go and that is why reading books like this is important to kind of give us the raw material to be able to recognize in ourselves in ourselves you know what is what is actually going on in our minds and the kind of things that hinder us from actually carrying out that personality development yeah maybe we could say that the criminal mind is like that it's just the fundamental entropic kind of element that people you would drift to if you Mm -hmm. don't you know keep your things in order if you don't Mm -hmm. keep yourself in order and you just keep drifting Mm -hmm. you know you you end up infringing on other people's you know space their their order their organization you end up becoming a burden yeah you end up harming them you end up introducing more chaos and, and entropy into everybody's lives and i think like like you said harrison you know this is so unconscious for a lot of people and it it brings me back to something we've talked about on other shows is the importance of of narratives in order to give an image of what it looks like to have to embody that that higher value mm-hmm. since you know for for most of us you know that's not something that we can probably ever cognitively you know uh, discover in the core you know being as wretched you know as mm-hmm. and sinners you know wretched sinners you need to have this um this this just maybe a, like a heuristic you know mm-hmm. which is what it function as for most people in order to say well you know what would jesus do you know that kind yeah. of a heuristic even if it's you know faulty but the problem is is that it's faulty i think and then you know we we haven't um you know we don't really have these up-to-date narratives that today um that we can use that you know or at least most people uh, don't have those kinds of narratives which kind of leaves people on on their own and um you know one of the big things about the criminal mind is that it is this closed 
um, it's a closed system. You know, it's self-referential. You know, it doesn't. It's not information seeking. It's not reaching out and opening up to feedback, which um, is what you know we need. That's probably one of the core narratives that we need as a civilization. Is that that is how you um, that is how you maintain order. That is how you you know you defeat entropy is by opening up and sharing. You know articulating the truth as best that you can and seeking the truth as best that you can um you know regardless of your station in life even if you're uh you know you're just a, a laborer you know i mean that's it's still in each of our ability to to articulate the truth and to seek the truth as best that we can and uh i think that part of this is you know when, when i was hearing harrison say that uh to mention the ideal uh, maybe some folks hear that and say, well, you know, I don't have an ideal uh, or, or a higher aim as such. Um, not even sure what that is. Well, that, that's part of the process too. Uh, you got to start somewhere. You don't have to start anywhere. <laughs> you, you, can, you can languish. But uh, if there is an impetus to, to, to find an ideal um, that's meaningful, to you personally, uh, to anyone, um, then get engaged in the process. Maybe, maybe that ideal will not look like what you think it is, or, or maybe it'll change in the process. But uh, I think that's, I think that is part of the, uh, the journey, uh, the search, um, and ideally it would never be never ending. So um, maybe, maybe at some point in the future we'll. We'll talk about ideals and aims, and as a as a subject, it seems like a really good uh, matter to get into in more detail. Yeah, like like Jordan Peterson would say that you have the you have the past, um, you have the present, and then you have the future. And then typically, the ideal is this org this organizing force that moves you into the future that you want. But you know, for a lot of people, they don't know what the past is, and we have no idea where we are now. <laughs> And in today's climate, it's it's probably even worse than that. I mean, with it is worse than that. We don't know where we want to go. We don't know where we're at. And we don't know where we came from. And we're being lied about. We're being lied to about it. So just as more important than ever to you know to tune in. <laughs> and with that said. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, to this week's episode of the Truth Perspective. We will be back next week hopefully and um so yeah thanks for tuning in and make sure to catch newsreel and the health and wellness show take care everyone bye-bye thanks for listening dear kindly social worker they tell me get a job like be a soda jerker which means like be a slob it's not i'm anti-social i'm only anti-work glory asky that's why i'm a jerk yes you've done it again this boy don't need a job he needs a year in the pen even just a question of misunderstood deep down inside him he's no good i'm no good we're no good we're no good we're no good we're no good like the best of us is no good the trouble is he's lazy the trouble is he drinks the trouble is he's crazy the trouble is he stinks the trouble is he's growing the trouble is he's grown Troubles of our own, officers of tea, we're down on our knees. Kindly, 
Cause no one wants a fella with a social disease. The